0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Today is a special day for us as a church family because it's our anniversary Sunday and I want to spend some time talking about who God made Williamsburg Christian Church to be 52 years ago. And so I want to tell you some story and I want to offer you some, (coughs) excuse me, some history. Because I'm not sure you know where you've come from now. I am a fan and a student of Christian history. I always have been. In a sense, it almost... Christian history kept me from walking away from Jesus. I don't think that's an overstatement. But I'm also a student of American history and history in general, as many of you. So I want to tell you some history. So you know where we've come from. Early in the spring of the year 1964, some of the residents of Greater Williamsburg, who were also members of the Lebanon Church of Christ, at Lee Hall, met to discuss the possibility of establishing a new congregation in Williamsburg. Present at this meeting were some of the elders and leaders of this church, the Lebanon congregation, and the hope, the hope was it would be this new church, a unifying congregation, one that sought to remove the barriers of denominational divides, and creeds, and promote unity in Christ, in Christ alone, and call all people to the gospel of God's kingdom. That was the hope. See, the heritage of these believers in 1964 is a non-denominational movement called the Restoration Movement. Say Restoration Movement. It was a movement inspired by the Holy Spirit during the late 18th and 19th century America and was a part of what Christian history calls the Second Great Awakening. See, during this time of American history, the religious belief of universalism, what that means is that all will be saved regardless of Christ, and the religious belief of deism, and what that means essentially is that belief in God, there's a belief that God made the world but is largely uninvolved in the world and it largely doubts the divinity of Christ. These two religions were beginning to take great influence in the nation. As the first great awakening of 1730 was losing its momentum, the age of enlightenment, which was this intellectual movement that emphasized reason and individualism over tradition and the supernatural was actually gaining ground. The writings of deists and thought leaders like John Locke along with founding fathers like Thomas Paine, Ethan Allen, and Thomas Jefferson continued to grow among the educated masses. Historians say that during this time of In his period of time in America, the country had become filled with rampant alcoholism and violent land grabbing. In the autumn of 1795, Methodist minister James Smith, realizing that deism and universalism denied the lordship of Jesus Christ, said this. He said, the universalists joining with the deists had given Christianity a deadly stab hereabouts. I wish we talked like that hereabouts. Or if you're from, like, Northwest, you say, here are boots. During the six years preceding 19th century America, the Methodist Church, most popular among the expanding middle and lower classes, declined in national membership almost 10%. Christianity's lack of influence became so apparent that in 1798, the Presbyterian General Assembly asked that a day be set aside for fasting, humiliation, and prayer to, quote, redeem the frontier from what became known and among the Christian faithful as the, quote, Egyptian darkness. Probably didn't know that in history. Several men throughout the country felt the stirring of the Spirit to get back to the Scriptures with a desire to read them anew, and none of these men knew one another. In the beginning. These men did so independent, and they represented different denominations. Men like Thomas and Alexander Campbell, who were Presbyterian ministers, John O'Kelly, a, a Methodist leader, Elias Smith and Admiral Jones, Baptist ministers, Martin W. Stone, a Presbyterian minister, and many others, all began to lay down their denominational barriers and denominational commitments to call themselves simply Christians. And that was the idea. These Midwestern and Southern church leaders felt so compelled to set aside their creeds and embrace what they believed to be this simple reading of the New Testament that they wanted to restore a commitment to faithfulness of Scripture, restore a commitment to unity in the kingdom of God. They wanted to discover the deeper meaning behind the crucified and risen Christ, one that spoke of reconciliation and restoration. Restoration. And so in their hearts, they didn't believe that denominationalism fostered this reconciliation and restoration, so they set these commitments aside and cast a new vision of this unified church that they said they were seeking to work with God to bring restoration to. And they each paid a price for their witness. But as they paid a price, they witnessed fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit during their tip meetings and revivals, and this is where it gets cray-cray. Because this is a part of our story that many of us who actually know the story don't know. See, one such fresh outpouring came to a small town in Kentucky called Cane Ridge when Barton W. Stone conducted what has been called the Cane Ridge Revival of 1801. An estimated 20,000 people showed up during this four-day celebration of communion, prayer, praise, and scripture. 20,000 people was 10% of the state of Kentucky. And in attendance were Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians, yet thousands came to Christ. And according to many eyewitness testimonies, the Holy Spirit poured out upon the people and manifest His presence in a way that didn't even fit Barton W. Stone's theology as women stood up and began to preach, as men began to stand up and preach, and even as children began to stand up and preach. As a matter of fact, Barton W. Stone, in his autobiography, said this about the Cane Ridge Revival. Many, very many, fell down as slain in battle and continued for hours together in an apparently breathless and motionless state, sometimes for a few moments reviving and exhibiting symptoms of a life by a deep groan or a piercing shriek, or by a prayer for mercy most fervently uttered. (laughs) Stone went on to say that quote, the gloomy cloud which had covered their faces gave way to smiles of hope and then of joy as they would finally rise, shouting deliverance. With astonishment did I hear men, women, and children declaring the wonderful works of God and the glorious mysteries of the gospel. End quote. This was a charismatic moment. So much so that this revival is called, in historical theology, America's Pentecost. Pentecost. And perhaps God knew that he needed to make sure that his people that were gathered knew that the Holy Spirit was behind this movement. Paul Konkin, a Vanderbilt historian, has said that this is arguably the most important religious gathering of all of American history. And out of this gathering, Cain Ridge, a new flow of churches were planted throughout, and especially within Virginia that eventually created this church called the Lebanon Church of Christ, that in 1964 eventually planted this church called the Williamsburg Christian Church. Hey yo, uh, Restoration Traditionist folk, this is our heritage. As Holy Spirit filled as the day is long, that through the age of enlightenment we explained away and put in a box because we often become a people who don't know our own story. Nonetheless, this church that was planted through this movement still seeks to restore unity by preaching the gospel of Christ as the good news of reconciliation, bringing together what sin and death has torn apart. And they believe that all men and women everywhere could be brought back into relationship with God and then consequently one another And we no longer need adjectives and brands to describe the Christian faith. We can go back to our baptismal identities and just call ourselves Christian. And that is what the restoration movement believed. And so 164, 63 years later in 1964, the leaders of the Lebanon Church of Christ blessed a small number of men and women to plant this new church, this expression of the restoration movement in Williamsburg called Williamsburg Christian Church. And I don't know if you know this, but back then and in the 60s and 70s, this church would become known as a church filled with come-heres rather than been-heres. Raise your hand if you know the come-here, been-here, pseudo-class warfare that takes place in Williamsburg, James City County. Yeah, read the last word, but don't, actually. (laughs) But do, but don't. See, that's how I feel when I see the last word. Don't do, don't do, don't read it. And you read it. If you don't know, this was a big deal then. Because as I have talked to other people who have been in this church since 1964, 65, and 66, and people who know the history, it is known that this church was a church filled with people who kind of just didn't really belong. It's always been our story. And so these men and women who took on this call of God to plant this church got together and they decided to secure land for $42,000 together in 1964. Now the time value of money of $42,000 in 1964 yields $326,037.87 in 2016. So what would feel like us coming up with $326,037.87 felt like that to them in 1964. Formal services began on October 11th, ironically, of 1964. And they worked and they prayed and slowly they grew. And now each year, one Sunday a year, we set aside to celebrate and remember our story because it is important that we do. To remember that we stand on the shoulders of many faithful spiritual mothers and fathers who out of deep conviction believe that God is reconciling the, all of creation into Himself through the Lord Jesus and that they are called to be His sit-ones. See, it wasn't on their letterheads or in their bulletins back then. But Williamsburg Christian Church, beginning in 1964, was still joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. And we still are. We may look different today than what they looked then. But I believe they would be honored by the work that God has performed. And if you're sitting here today, it's important that you know this church didn't arrive from a vacuum. It wasn't one man or woman's idea. If you're sitting here today, it's important that you know you stand on the shoulders of men and women who have faithfully prayed and worked that one day we would sit here. (laughs) That 52 years later, Williamsburg Christian Church would be faithful. In the hope that maybe 52 years from now, We might still be around, but ultimately, that's the Lord's prerogative. I don't know, and it doesn't really matter much to me. What matters to me is how faithful we're going to be for the next 52 minutes. In 52 seconds. And so, my hope is we'll tend this morning to the deeper reason behind remembering our particular story as a local congregation in the universal body of Christ to have our eyes and ears open to how God has moved in and through this congregation over the last 52 years. We don't want to merely be data collectors. Say data collectors. collectors. We don't want to be data collectors of our story just so we can know the facts and figures and the people. No, no. We need to become meaning makers. Say "Meaning meaning makers. We need to become meaning makers to see how the Holy Spirit is continually renewing us to faithfully embody the gospel in a way that speaks specifically to us here today as it did specifically to 1964, as it did specifically at 1801 at Cane Ridge. See, because we're here, because God has something to say to the city. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to read verses 13 to 21 together as we continue our... Reflection on this 52nd anniversary Sunday for Williamsburg Christian Church. Text reads like this. Then he, Jesus, left them, Pharisees, and got on board the boat again and went to the other side. They, talking about the disciples, had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. And then he commanded them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And they were discussing among themselves that they did not not have any bread. Still makes me laugh. Jesus is trying to give them a seminar, and they're still talking about the bread they don't have. Aware of this, Jesus says to them, Why are you discussing that you do not have any bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Is your heart hardened? Do you have eyes and not see? And do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces of bread did you collect? 12, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of pieces of bread? Did you collect seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? So the story goes, Jesus and his disciples are out on the lake in a boat. Disciples have forgotten to bring any bread that they had collected from the feeding of the 4,000 that had just taken place. And they had forgotten, or at least did not understand, that Jesus was in the bread business. And Jesus says to his disciples, as he's about to give them this quick seminar, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, watch out for the junk food of the world. Don't bite into the bread of pride and selfishness, of greed, of hatred, of violence, of self-indulgence, of indifference, because what you eat will define your life. So, Jesus says, what have you learned from the bread? Do you understand about the bread? Do you remember the 4,000 I fed just a little while ago and how I said to all of you then that I am the bread of life? Do you not remember about the 5,000 that I just fed? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? It's as if Jesus is saying to the disciples, I just did two big miracles and you do not see that life and food are totally different with me. Jesus moves away from the hard questions that require meaning-making, and what I mean by that is the hard work of thinking deeply about what they saw and heard by looking beyond the facts, and he invites them into what they do best, and that is data collecting and analysis. And so he says, when I fed five thousand people with five loaves, how much was left over? How much basket? How many baskets was surplus? And they knew that answer, twelve. Finally, when I fed the four thousand with seven loaves, how much was left over? How many baskets in surplus? And the disciples said, seven. See, they know the simple math. They collected the data. They participated in the operation, but intending to the details of their own needs at the moment, they failed to think deeply about what they had seen and missed the wonder and mystery of life as it happened in the presence of Jesus. They were so focused on what they thought they needed at that moment that they failed to remember what life is like when Jesus is present with you in the boat. They were so focused on the bread they lacked that in all their fretting and anxiety, they failed to see the bread of life sitting in across from them. See, Mark says they had one loaf, and I think Mark's being tricksy. Because Jesus is the bread of life, and I think he's saying he's the loaf, and they didn't see it. They were so busy collecting the data and so attuned to knowing the facts and figures that they missed the meaning in the facts and the larger purpose of the figures. They could answer the details of the story, book, chapter, and verse, but they could not capture the meaning. See, the Gospel writers of both stories subtly point out that neither... In neither account do the disciples find, quote, astonishment or amazement at these stories. See, when Jesus does something dramatic, like healings or casting out demons, the gospel writers are sure to tell us that the disciples were astonished and amazed. But not the feedings. There's no astonishment or amazement recorded of the disciples in the the narratives of the feelings. And maybe it's because these miracles were just too normal. Maybe they were too mundane. It's just bread. Maybe they were too much like daily life. No burning bushes here. Just the everyday comings and goings of basic human needs. So Jesus asks the saddest question of all and ends the narrative with the saddest question of all and that is Don't you understand yet? They didn't get it. They did not get that daily life and daily bread are transformed by the power of God so that whoever tastes this daily bread and daily life lives life differently. They did not get that when Jesus is present, they didn't need to fret or stress or fear. They, they did not get that there's no need to worry about what is lacking because God has surplus. They did not get that when they see Jesus work in daily life, like in the provision of something so normal as food, that they should pay better attention and see the meaning in God's provision, the meaning that he cares and that he's sovereign Lord and that he's provider of all things and that all we receive is grace. And like in both stories, that when we receive this provision of grace from Jesus, it is meant to be enjoyed and shared with others. See, the disciples had become data collectors and not meaning makers. The question for us is what are we? As we sit back and look at 52 years of our church's history, and as we step even further to 1801, and as we step back to 1600 at Reformation, and as we step back all into 2,000 years, and as we step back beyond 2,000 years to what we consider as Genesis 1, what do we see? Do we see data? Do we just know the faces? Or can we sit here and see beyond the faces of people and into every person's story and life? as God has called us together. See, and in a society where antagonisms are answered by more antagonisms, you see it all over Facebook. Because we're justified. As we live in a society where we talk past one another, where we're committed more to our ideology than we are our fellow humanness? In a society where we lean toward wanting to be understood rather than seeking to understand? As we live in a society where fear drives us toward the disdain or at worst hatred of another and away from love, as we live in a society where we find no problem, no problem whatsoever placing other human beings in categories like liberal, conservative, progressive, fundamentalist, non patriotic, not patriotic, patriotic, and all these different things, do we see the deeper? meaning behind who we are? Especially when we gather here in our homes or when we're simply together like places in the park. And when we come around this table, do we see that despite all the ideologies and categories, that it's the presence of Jesus that unites us as the body of Christ? And it's been that way since 1964. Because with one voice, we come as one people to offer songs of praise and thanksgiving and lament. With one heart, we open ourselves up to hear God speak through the readings of Scriptures and prayers and communal silence. Do we see how as one people, we come to the end of our gathering around the Eucharistic table where we remember our primal confession that Jesus is Lord. Do we see that it is here that we're summoned, here that we're summoned to submit all ideologies, all opinions, all antagonisms to the presence of Christ. It is here we discern His presence. We discern His presence in the company of the people of God, which for me, often calls me to repentance, calls me to humility, calls me to greater love, to love more fully all the people gathered at the table despite the disagreements that are present here because all are submitted to the presence of Christ. And calls me to remember that once I leave the table, I leave still in submission to the presence of Christ to see all with the eyes of Christ. Do we see, or are we just data collectors who take the bread and the cup and never really consider what the bread and the cup means? Do we see that the beginning here in our communal worship, we determine and reinforce our identity and mission as witnesses of the presence of Jesus in daily life? This gathering Here, as it has been for 52 years, is in a sense a rehearsal of what life should be lived like Monday through Saturday. What I mean is, it's in this gathering that we learn to tend to the presence of Christ together so we can discern his presence when we're fretting over the cares of the world later. It's here that we learn to tend to the presence of Christ together so we'll remember and make meaning of his presence in our daily lives and our comings and goings so that we fail, so that we do not miss him in the mundane. It's here where our imaginations are reformed with a perspective that aligns more with the kingdom of God rather than the kingdoms of this world. Our Sunday liturgy this is what we do, our liturgy called the work of the people. That's what liturgy means, what we do when we gather together. That liturgy seeks to model our way of life. The way of blessing, the cultivation of the common life rooted in our true identity, and the preparation of mission. See, it's here in the common gathering of people, the people of God, that we remember our baptismal identities. That we're not our denominational divides and barriers, our doctrinal divides and barriers, our ideological divides and barriers. We are not those things. We are, if we have confessed Jesus as Lord, nothing less than Christian. Before any nationality, any ethnicity, and any other citizenship, we are first and foremost always, primally, primarily, most deeply Christian and we are called to faithfully pursue that above all other pursuits. If we can remember that, then we will make meaning of what happened 52 years ago at the Lebanon Church of Christ. When men and women put their lives on the line in the hope that 52 years later, we would sit here remembering our confession together and that we might look like our confession. A bunch of people who shouldn't be together who are together because Jesus is our Lord. Amen. And so to illustrate that, I've asked a couple of guys to share a couple of things. One is Jason Thornton. Many of you know him because many of you like him more than you like me when he preaches. So I'm gonna ask Jason to come up. And uh, <laughs> it's okay. Um, I know I'm the better looking one. That's all that really matters. See, I mean, which one would you choose, really? Like,
1: don't tell him how loud. <laughs> um, Fred asked me just to share. Um, why we're here. Um, or maybe he was just asking me why I'm here. Um, but um, I just wanted to share a little bit about why we have become a part of WCC. Um, our family um, became a part of the church here, started attending here um, three, three years ago next month. And uh, we were initially drawn uh, to WCC by the relationships that we formed uh, with our missional community. Um, our, our missional community has really um uh, become family to us. and uh, that was something that I think we particularly needed uh, when we came here because we kind of uh, felt isolated and burnt out from having been in uh, pastoral ministry uh, for the past two years, uh, ten years, and kind of having a, a difficult um, time of it at times. Um but beyond just the relationships and beyond that initial reason for us coming here, um, what has, I think, had the greatest impact on us remaining here at WCC and, and planning on being here long term, and uh, what even had an impact on us moving into the community from York County um, last summer has been um, the encouragement that we've received to live on mission with God. And what I mean by that is the encouragement that we've received uh, to bring God's love in tangible ways into our neighborhoods and our networks and our workplaces and, and just uh, the places where we frequent in our community. Um, I think I'd say, and this is kind of strange given my background, but I think I'd say that I've, I've uh, learned to see people differently um, because of uh, you know, Fred's help, but also because of living in community uh, with you guys. Um, I grew up in the church, and I always wanted to make a contribution uh, to God's work. Um, my father was a pastor. Both of my grandfathers were, a pa- were pastors in addition to an uncle and a brother and a brother-in-law. It's kind of the family business. Um, I was in uh, pastoral ministry for uh, 10 years myself in two different churches uh, prior uh, to coming here. Um, I knew the scriptures. Uh, I taught them to other people. I tried my best to apply the scriptures to my life and to encourage other people uh, to do the same. Um, But since I've been here at WCC, I think I'd say that uh, I'm understanding more and more about what really God is calling us to, the type of life that God is calling us to um, in Christ. Uh, I'm understanding more about the type of self-giving love that he's uh, calling us to live among the last and the least. Uh, I'm understanding more about how he shaped me and how he continues to shape me uh, to live into his calling. Um, I'm understanding more about the beauty of living in real community and the role that, that community plays, Christian community plays into living into who God made us to be. Um, I think I'm understanding more of what it lives, what it means to live in relationship to Jesus and his church and to those who aren't yet a part of his church, as opposed to just living in relationship to the scriptures, um, if that makes uh, any sense. Um, I've been refreshed and I've been encouraged and challenged by this community of God's people. I'm excited to be a part of a church family uh, that's devoted to... Um, Bearing witness to the love of Christ among those that many churches ignore, among those that many churches purposely avoid, Uh, I'm excited to be a part of a church that's committed to impacting not only this community uh, in tangible ways, but also impacting a community halfway around the world in tangible ways, not only through generosity, but also through meaningful relationships. And so I guess I'd say that we're here, we've decided to be here for the long haul because um, first of all, and I, I didn't ask Becky about this. I don't know exactly how she feels, but this is how I feel. I'm going to assume that Becky feels similar. But first of all, I've seen God's spirit at work in me um, uh, to, to help me mature and to grow my faith and to change uh, some of the wrong views that I had. Um, but I also have seen God's work, uh, God, the spirit work uh, in and among his people here. And so um, we're, we're just grateful uh, to be a part of this body. Thank you, brother. We're grateful to have y'all.
0: I wanted to close it out with one more voice. I'm going to ask Bill Keeble to come. Now, those of you in the back, you may not be able to see him very well. Um, So I'll ask him to stand on the stage so you can can see him clearly.
2: Um, ah, yeah, funny guy.
0: <laughs> uh, Bill and Ruth haven't been here that long, but I wanted their voice to be heard because as I've listened to Bill, he the, the Spirit has really convicted me through him, so
2: Bill, go ahead, brother. Yeah, thank you, Pastor, and uh, we'll talk about that wise comment later. The uh, My wife, Ruth, who unfortunately is, is out of town today, and I apologize for that because Dave over here tells me I'm not allowed to attend without Ruth, but... Uh, just give me a pass this time, day, Okay, all right. Thanks, buddy. But um, after 23 years or so in the lovely Garden State of New Jersey, my wife and I decided we gotta get out of here. And we said, well, let's let's look for a place to go. And so we we settled on this area of the country. And of course, very high on the list of priorities was finding a church. And so we took months and months of coming down here and looking. Uh, at the community, the housing, the the area, where we would go, all those things that you do. We were in no rush, but so we had plenty of time. And on each one of those trips, we would plan it for a Sunday so that we could go in, and visit churches because we were doing one of those things that when Pastor Fred hates the word. We were church shopping. Yeah, we did it. And we would go to, in some cases, we'd go to an early service at one church and a later service at, the, at another one on the same Sunday so we can get them all in because, see, I was, a, I was a businessman, and I, I know how to make decisions, and you got to collect data, right? You know, you got to analyze things. You got to put it all together because I'll make that decision. <laughs> so we come down here, and we start looking for churches, and, and we find a house, and we closed on the house, oh, about five months before we actually moved here, so we are back and forth a lot, and one of our... Uh, Last trips and our last visits to our old church in New Jersey, which we'd been part of for many, many years, I ran into a friend of mine there. His name is Maceo. Now, you, you got to meet Maceo. Maceo is about 80 years old, semi-retired African-American pastor from South Carolina who runs a full-time, runs a mission in downtown Newark, New Jersey. And Maceo is an unbelievable man of God. I, I love him so much and I respect him even more. And, on my, like I said, my last trip there, I see my friend Maceo as we're crossing the parking lot. And Maceo sees me and he goes, Bill, he said, uh, have you found a church in this new town Williamsburg you're going to? Well, you see, what had happened in that interim period is we had indeed found a church with all the, past, all the things. They, like me, they thought like me, great preaching, unbelievably friendly people in just, you know, everything was sound. You come and you go and it was great. They sang all the old songs that I like. They did check, check, check. And we had gone to their new member orientation class and met the pastors and started to get signed up on some things. And and everything was just so comfortable there. And it was great. And so I'd say to Macy, go, Yes, I found this church. She says, Well, well, what were you looking for? As you were looking for this church building, I said, Maceo, I was looking for a place that I could just be comfortable. Uh Uh-oh. Because you see, I'm sitting here holding this Bible in my hand, standing in the parking lot, and Maceo, my dear godly friend, looks down at that book I'm holding. Slowly lifts his eyes and looks me dead in the eye, and he says, Bill, let me ask you a question. You ever take any time to read that book you're holding? It's because if you have, I would love it if you could tell me the chapter and verse where it says Jesus Christ gives a hoot about your comfort in church. Uh-oh. Well, of course he was right. I talked to my wife about that a little bit and about the decision that we'd made for where we we're going. And I said, you know what? This, this decision that I've made for us, maybe it's not right. Maybe we need to keep looking, you see. I was under the assumption that the Bible in Isaiah 30, 21 told me collect data, make decisions, weigh options, collect, you know, make, and, you know, make learned decisions, but it doesn't say that. What it says was, you will hear a voice behind you, you ever heard people say that voice in the back of my head? The Bible talks about it, you will hear a voice behind you saying turn to the left or turn to the right, walk that way, oh dear, my search For a church continued but this time I said I'm not gonna use my little data collection let's see what God's got and we had passed by here and we said well let's go let's go that church that church there in that big yard (laughs) you know look at way down there somewhere there's a church building I keep thinking who cuts that grass you know but I said well let's go there So we pull in on Sunday morning, we pull in here to this service, and what struck me first was the youth out there in the field, out here on playing on the playground, tossing frisbee, throwing footballs, hanging out, parents there talking with each other, and I stood there in the park next to my car and I went, well, that looks healthy. And I came in and, you know, people were friendly and people were nice and, you know, said hello, and that's great. And then I came in and I sat over there this time and uh, listened to the preaching and, you know, looking for my comfort zone. And well, I didn't find that. I got real uncomfortable. Because right in the middle of the service, somebody, pastor standing up here, and he's talking about somebody come to him about how he needs to go and visit all the sick. And that's your job. You need to be doing that. And he said something that struck me like a thunderbolt when he says, Oh, no. There's 300 and some odd priests in this church. He talked about it again this morning about we are the priests, we are the pastors. He talked about a church that has equal responsibilities to serve the body, to serve the community, to serve the world, and to worship God. And I said, oh, hmm, this isn't like what so many churches have become today, which is closer to a country club where people come in and sit as if they're the audience and says, I want to be entertained. Oh, I don't like that song. I want something else like we can push the button on the radio. They want to have... The sermon talks about, oh, that makes me, oh, don't talk about that. Let's just do like some of these other churches do and talk about how God loves everybody and don't worry about nothing. God will forgive everything you did. Drop a five bucks in the offering plate and just hug one another and grin. Now, he talked about how we are here to serve each other. We're here to serve the body. And so since that time, and we decided we weren't, we're already part of the full family of God, but my wife and I decided collectively, through the leading of the Spirit, we want to be part of this body. And so we made that happen. And then how, what happened, how did, how's it going? I'm telling you, I've seen a lot of times where you in this church have, have ex, exam, been examples to me where you've walked the walk. I've seen probably the most poignant was on, the I guess, the Christmas Eve service. Maybe some of you were there, where we were hosting the, the homeless or near homeless or in various stages of homelessness, people that were here. And you had the table set up all out here. And we had signed up to come, except this Christmas, I had my, like, all my family, and we had a dozen, 12 of us were here. I mean, my house was full and two condos full of us. And, and so I said, we're going to my new church and, you know, see the people and go to the service. I told them what it was going to be like. Now, understand this, several of my family members are not believers or have not or have drifted away from their faith. And so I said, well, we'll go to the Christmas Eve thing, yada, yada. And I come in. We were on time, but we weren't early, clearly, because we got to the doors back here. And what did we find? My gosh, it was chaotic in here. There There was people everywhere lining up and down the walls. All the tables were taken, seats were filled. There wasn't room for two more, much less 12. So we stood around there looking for an alternative. Oh, man, what am I going to do? Here I've got all my family standing around. Well, what are you going to do? And there wasn't anything to do. So I I looked for a way, looked for an option, tried to figure something out. And we watched the comings and going. So I did the only thing I could do. Well, I left. Got my family, grabbed in the car, said, well, we were going to go. Ran to a neighborhood church and ended up going and listening to the beautiful, uh, if not inspiring, Christmas carol sing-along. Okay. And then we went home. Now, some might think, oh, boy, that must have been embarrassing, Bill. You had your family here. You come into your church. There's no room for you. You got put out. But no. Because when we got home that night, we sat around in my living room and asked the question, when we got to the church and those doors back there, what would you guys see? You know what they said? They said, it was just amazing that... We're standing there and we're watching and, and like the, the, the guests were interspersed amongst everybody. They weren't shoved over in the corner to be looked at like our pity. They were being hugged and greeted. The children were playing with their children. People were greeting each other and hugging. It was laughter everywhere. It was, you, were, you guys were here. It was crazy in here. And they said, the faces is what struck so much of, our, of my family the most. They said, these people who my guess is haven't been treated with respect in a very long time were treated like honored guests at the table. <laughs> well done. Because you see, was I embarrassed by what went on here that night? No, I could not have been more proud. Because it was the table in this church that was folding plastic tables that had lined up in here that were full of people, brought in as honored guests, none of us worthy. And that example of that five or six minutes provided a conversation with my family that night that was so simple, the parallel and the connection about how people like me, low, Mm -hmm. sinful people like me, get invited to this table. We're not worthy but we are honored guests, more so. We're adopted children that sit at that table. What a joy it was to have our Christmas Eve service only lasted five minutes, but it impacted a lifetime. So, is God finished with us yet? No. Have we got a lot of ways to go? Yeah, have I got a lot of ways to go there too, but I look forward and I praise God to the opportunity of going there with you. Thank you, Pastor. Good to
0: Fifty-two years ago, this small group of people came to that Lebanon Church of Christ, and I believe they hoped to plant a church that might tell a story like that. I hope that we're faithful to what God is doing so we can honor what God has done and wants to continue to do in and through this little faith community we call Williamsburg Christian Church. And so if you're here and you're visiting and you're, yes, I can't stand the term church shopping. I mean, listen to what that says. But if you're church shopping, um, don't buy here if you want easy or if you want um, comfortable. Be here if you want to be serious about being joined in mission with God and being forced with the reality that we have to work out our love for one another by making sure that we make sure all others are welcome to the table. Because as Bill said, None of us are except by the invitation of God through Christ. We're only welcomed here because we serve and love and are loved by a God of hospitality who welcomes us in and through the presence of Christ.